Thank you for listening to this podcast on the role of inflammation in the treatment of diabetic macular edema. This podcast is sponsored by Alamira Sciences, the makers of Alluvian. Alluvian provides consistent, continuous treatment of DME for up to 36 months. Patient results discussed in this podcast illustrate positive outcomes using Alluvian in an actual patient. Results may vary across patients. Illuvian, fluocinolone acetonide intravitreal implant, 0.19 mg, is indicated for the treatment of diabetic macular edema, DME, in patients who have been previously treated with a course of corticosteroids and did not have a clinically significant rise in intraocular pressure. Illuvian should not be used in patients who have advanced glaucoma or have an active or suspected infection in or around the eye. The most common side effects reported in patients with diabetic macular edema who were treated with Illuvian include cataracts, Illuvian 82%, sham 50%, and increased eye pressure, Illuvian 34%, sham 10%. For more detailed safety information on Illuvian, please go to hcp.illuvian.com. Now, on to the podcast. We hope that you find it enjoyable and informative. So welcome, everybody, wherever you may be listening to us. My name is Jorge Fortune. I'm an associate professor of ophthalmology at the Bascom Palmer Institute based out of Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. And it is my distinct pleasure to be joined today by my friends and colleagues, Dr. Christina Wang, who's an associate professor of ophthalmology at the Cullen Eye Institute at the Baylor College of Medicine, and Dr. Mito Mehta, who is also an associate professor of ophthalmology uh, based out of the Gavin Herbert Eye Institute at the University of California, Irvine. And this is a series of podcasts uh, which overall cover the topic of optimizing the treatment of DME, particularly focusing on the role that inflammation has to play in the pathophysiology of diabetic macular edema and strategies in which we can use steroids, particularly Illuvian, uh, in treatment of diabetic macular edema. So with that, we'll get started. Welcome, Christina. Welcome, Mito. Thanks, Jorge. Thank you. Thank you for having us today. Hey, Jorge. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no problem. I hope you guys are doing well. And uh, let's jump right into it. So I think if we're going to start off with pathophysiology, perhaps we can start off by acknowledging that uh, DME is a disease which uh, for years now uh, has been treated uh, in, in large part by many retina specialists out there with intravitreal anti-VEGF injections. And while we know that uh, vascular endothelial growth factor certainly plays a uh, large role in the pathophysiology of DME, I think that we all begin to understand the role that inflammation and chronic inflammation plays and that beyond this vascular model, there is a significant role for inflammatory disease and that VEGF, while it may be a uh, and mediator of some of these processes is not the only thing involved. And so perhaps I could ask you guys to uh, share with me what your understanding or what role in your mind as you think about DME uh, inflammation plays. I'll go ahead and start, Jorge. So it's interesting because 
the reason I'm so fascinated by diabetic retinopathy and DME is because there is so much still that we don't fully understand. We don't understand why certain patients respond great to anti-VEGF monotherapy and other patients seem to get caught up. Maybe they'll have a little bit of improvement, but they won't improve as much as we would have hoped. And it's interesting because when I think back to when I was a medical student rotating through ophthalmology, I vividly remember this one teaching session that one of the faculty members pulled me aside and, and went through this pathophysiology of diabetic retinopathy with me. And the thought really was in the past that you get these advanced glycated end products from hyperglycemia with diabetes, that in turn leads to ischemia, that in turn leads to the upregulation of VEGF being produced, and that is really what damages the blood retinal barrier and maybe at the end stage, inflammation happens as a result of this entire cascade. And while I do think a lot of those components are true, I think what we've learned recently through more of our recent studies and as we understand the disease more, is that while these components are definitely part of that pathophysiology, inflammation really happens much, much earlier in that cascade. So from what we understand currently, at least from the studies that I've read about in recent years, it's really flipped over on its head a little bit where you've got this chronic state of hyperglycemia, this leads to oxidative stress, it leads to inflammation very, very early on, and that in turn really leads down the chain to vascular changes, the upregulation of VEGF and other inflammatory cytokines, and then that ends up cycling back on itself. So I don't think, the bottom line I think is that it's not as straightforward of a pattern as we think. It's not like here's step one, two, three, four. I think there's a lot of feedback cycles that come onto themselves within this pathophysiology cascade and inflammation is much earlier on, even before diabetic retinopathy and DME present. What you mentioned there was that the model that you were taught uh, that what a lot of us learned early on about how uh, diabetes can cause vascular damage uh, is what we could term the vascular model, um, where, uh, you know, VEGF plays the predominant role. But as you were mentioning, as we uh, understand the uh, heterogeneous nature of this disease, that inflammation is actually the inciting factor. And not only is it the inciting factor that leads to eventual upregulation of VEGF, but that it plays a role significantly throughout, not only uh, in leading to vascular damage, but also causing inflammation that directly affects uh, the, uh, the neural tissue. Uh, and so, uh, Mitchell, your thoughts on this? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking, because the, the problem that the vascular model in DME and diabetic retinopathy starts with is that it assumes that all of that starts when diabetes starts. But as we all know, diabetes starts way before all of this, uh, even in type 2 diabetics. So there's a chronic disease that's going on that's affecting all parts of the body, and it's not just vascular. And so this chronic disease, all chronic diseases do lead to inflammation. And so this chronic inflammatory cascade release, one of those is VEGF. But there are plenty of other cytokines, IL-6, uh, you know, IL-2 and 3, and all of these different inflammatory cytokines are all being released throughout the whole body, and all of those do feed back together to do end organ damage to the pericytes and the endothelial cells uh, of all the vasculature, and that causes ischemia, which causes the release of VEGF. But you can't just fix one of those pathways and expect to have a, a final answer for this disease process. You really do need kind of an all-of-the-above type approach, and 
as we know, steroids are the most effective way of broad control of inflammation in the body. So I think we've established that clearly inflammation plays not only an inciting role, uh, but uh, affects several different points of the pathway uh, leading to you know vascular dysfunction, but also leading to direct neural damage. Uh, and so it's, it's pervasive throughout the disease process. Uh, but perhaps, you know, we could talk about why doesn't just, uh, if that's the case, a single dose of steroids work? Uh, and perhaps, uh, Mutil or Christina, either you can comment on, you know, what's the difference between, uh, you know, acute inflammation that we may see in some other disease processes and perhaps the type of inflammation that we see in uh, diabetic and organ damage and particularly in diabetic macular edema? So I think the problem with the single big whopping dose idea is that it's a chronic disease. So there's always a drive for it. So if you're not constantly producing uh, a stable control of all the inflammatory cascade release, then you're not chronically controlling the disease. It's like trying to iron um, a, a piece of aluminum foil with a sledgehammer. You really need to smooth it out constantly to really get all the wrinkles out. Yeah, speaking from experience, that doesn't work uh, all the times I've tried to iron out a piece of aluminum foil with a sledgehammer. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with what Mithil said. I think that when you're talking about the acute inflammatory processes that happen in our body, you know, I always like to give the example of, say, you cut yourself on your skin. There's some kind of insult to the body's homeostasis. And usually what happens in acute settings like that, you get some kind of insult as a response, your body mounts an inflammatory cytokine release, and that draws in all sorts of white blood cells, macrophages, all of that, all the different components of the immune system that are activated, and they come and rush in and help to resolve that insult. And that brings the body back to homeostasis. You get acute rise in these inflammatory factors, and then as that resolution, as your immune system kicks in, you also get a sharp decline as you return to baseline. And the difference with the whole pathophysiology of diabetic retinopathy and DME is that it results from a chronic smoldering type of inflammation. It's not this acute response that's able to be contained. So what ends up happening is the insult in that setting would be this chronic state of hyperglycemia, which we know triggers you know, reactive oxygen species, a whole bunch of other in in inflammatory cytokines. And instead of them being released all at once, there's this ongoing slow release. And so you don't ever mount the type of response in your body the way you would with, say, a paper cut on your finger, for instance. And as a result, it can't be cleaned up. There's no resolution from your body's own, own immune system. And that is why it's really interesting to think about the anti-VEGF bolus therapies, which do work very well. I want to be clear about that. I think we all agree and turn to those oftentimes first line. But, you know, when you're giving these bolus therapies that have a very short half-life that don't last a long time, you get this chronic up and down type of effect because, again, there's always this background level of inflammation that continues to persist. Yeah, so I think to summarize, we've, we've covered some uh, good points here. I think not only the role that inflammation plays uh, outside of what we have for a long time thought of as a VEGF-mediated disease, and whereas VEGF plays an important role, we know it doesn't play the only role. We know that inflammation and inflammatory responses play a significant role uh, throughout the uh, pathophysiology of diabetic macular edema from 
onset where hyperglycemia drives inflammation that then leads to a series of downstream effects. But that also, as uh, you both pointed out, it's a chronic smoldering disease where not only does continued hyperglycemia drive uh, continued inflammation, but even in uh, patients where hyperglycemia is controlled, which obviously is, is a very important thing in the treatment of the disease, the inflammatory cascade then feeds back on itself and creates further uh, inflammation so that there's no finite repair mechanism. Repair is always ongoing, uh, and that repair, which is inflammatory in nature, creates further damage, uh, which creates further inflammation. So clearly there is a need for not only uh, therapy that addresses things beyond uh, vascular endothelial growth factor, but for a therapy that is not uh, acute or bolus-driven, but that is continuous. And I think that that has uh, led us to understand that as we look at disease beyond pathophysiology and we look at clinical disease, not only do we get patients that are not completely responsive to anti-VEGF therapy, uh, but we get patients that require uh, steroid therapy for inflammation on a chronic basis so that uh, bolus uh, dosing of steroids is uh, not uh, as efficient as continuous dosing. Yeah, it's, it's very similar to the concept of insulin. Back in, if you guys remember in the old days when, when we were in medical school, uh, we only had short-acting insulins, and it was very difficult to get diabetics under control. It was very common to see diabetics with amputations and all sorts of other problems. But when they started using longer-acting glarginine lantus uh, insulin, they had much better control of these diabetics. And now we're seeing 90-year-old diabetics that we didn't think we would see when we were in medical school. So maybe let's briefly touch upon the fact that while diabetic macular edema um, is a disease that we're trying to treat, uh, and at the end of the day, we are going to look at OCT to measure the response to uh, retinal thickness, uh, uh, and we use it as a primary guideline for diabetic edema, perhaps we can delve into and, and, and backtrack a little bit as to what other roles inflammation plays beyond just vascular leakage and DME as end organ damage. Yeah, so Jorge, I mean, I think that inflammation leads to all sorts of very damaging effects. I mean, obviously the first one you think about is that it causes ischemia at, towards the end of the cascade when you see that there um, are VEGF and other inflammatory cytokines that are upregulated as a result of uh, the hyperglycemia that happens in our diabetic patients' bodies. What ends up happening is that they only they damage the vessels. They also damage the blood retinal barrier, and it can even contribute to the neurodegeneration portion, which may be a whole independent mechanism of the way patients lose vision in um, in the diabetic realm. We're trying to treat the vision. We're not just trying to treat the OCT because this constant swelling and decrease of swelling in these maculas it's not good for the health of the nerves because it's not just the photoreceptors. There's also all of these nerves within the retina. You have your, your bipolar cells, your, your Mueller cells, you have all these different uh, amacrine cells, all these different neural networks of tissues inside of the inner retina as well. Uh, and they do not do well with this constant fluctuations of the swelling. So when you finally get the swelling under control, at some point, and we've all seen this, the patients have totally flat maculas and terrible vision because it took so long to get it under control and it was such a seesaw effect that 
they just aren't able to maintain the vision that they want. So that's the advantage of having a longer term continuous dose steroid to reduce the inflammatory cascade. I really like what Mitchell said about all the different cells and layers in the retina being affected, and that's so true. And while there are many types of cells in our retinas that release these inflammatory cytokines, I want to give a shout out to one of our favorite cells, the Mueller glial cells. And they are a very prominent source of inflammatory cytokines and growth factors, including VEGF. They're really highly activated in response to the hyperglycemia state of our diabetic patients. And remember, the most special part about Mueller glial cells is that they span the entire width of the retina, the entire um, depth of it. And they also have intimate contact with retinal vasculature. They help to maintain the blood retinal barrier. They play so many different important roles. But I think what we forget sometimes, and I always like to think back to this, is that when they do release these inflammatory cytokines, it spreads, it pervades through the entire retinal thickness all the way down to the photoreceptors and RPE to the superficial layers where most of the blood vessels are. And so there, that's why we see so much damage to Mitchell's point about why we might sometimes see dry retinas at the end of the day, but they're not seeing well at all. And when the glial cells are activated, they also trigger other cells to be activated like microglia. And when these microglia are activated and recruited, they then spin off further inflammation. They also release cytokines themselves, and they go actually back from the literature we've learned that they actually go back and feed back on the Mueller glial cells, causing them to be upregulated. So you get into this vicious cycle, which is why I think it's so important to address that there are other inflammatory factors aside from VEGF and early too. I think time is of the essence. Yeah, again, not, you know, not to uh, beat a dead horse, but I think that we've had uh two separate discussions of the pathophysiology of DME, and they both point, again, to the utility of uh, an agent that not only addresses inflammation, but addresses it in a uh, long-term fashion and in a continuous fashion. Uh, and I think the point was well made by both of you that uh, edema in and of itself obviously causes damage, uh, but it's inflammation that eventually leads to edema. And separate from the edema causing the damage, there's this whole background process that's happening where inflammation in and of itself damages the cells that are responsible for vision, including all the supportive cells that were mentioned, the amacrine cells, the bipolar cells, and particularly the Mueller cells, which seem to drive not only fluid regulation, but also are the drivers of uh, inflammation as well. So uh, again, you know, the need for continuous, long-term, steady, inflammatory control is important uh, to treat our patients clinically. And uh, as Mittal, as you pointed out, not only treat the OCT, but ultimately achieve good vision. Well, I hope you enjoyed that in-depth conversation. Uh, everything and more that you ever really wanted to know about inflammation and DME. Uh, thanks to Christina and Mito for making that as uh, interesting as possible. 